Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Save big money in your next project with help from Menards. Move water where you need it quickly with a Barracuda sump pump. Sump pumps keep your basement dry when big storms hit unexpectedly. Get a half-horsepower cast iron Barracuda sump pump on sale now through May 5th. Hurry into Menards and don't forget to check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. I don't use the word hero lightly. Congressman John Robert Lewis is a hero. In the turbulent 1960s, young John Lewis stood side by side with Martin Luther King Jr and other civil rights crusaders, displaying unwavering courage. Through years of continual nonviolent protests, John Lewis battled segregation head on and shined a spotlight on the cruelty of racism in America. Whether he was participating in sit-ins in Nashville, marching for equality in Washington, D.C., taking a stand on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, or proudly serving his district in Atlanta, John Lewis has always embodied persistence, fearlessness, and hope. The son of Alabama sharecroppers, John Lewis grew up witnessing the injustices of the Jim Crow South. It was here that he began his life's work to fight for equality and justice for everybody. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Congressman John Lewis. I grew up in rural Alabama, about 10 miles from a little town called Troy. In 1944, when I was four years old, and I do remember when I was four, my father had saved $300. And with the $300, a man sold him 110 acres of land. On the farm, I fell in love with raising chickens. When my mother or father wanted to have a chicken for lunch or for dinner, I didn't like it. And I would boycott the meal. But the chickens became my friends. And as a little boy, I wanted to be a minister. So with the help of my brothers and sisters and cousins, we would gather all of our chickens together in the chicken yard. They would help make up the audience, the congregation. And I would start preaching to these chickens. I wanted to save the souls of some of these chickens. And I would tell them, I said, be good, be kind, not to fight. And some of these chickens would bow their heads. Some of these chickens would shake their heads. They never quite said amen but they tended to listen to me much better than some of my colleagues listened to me today in the Congress. I grew up with, a, I guess, a restless spirit. When we would go off to school, we had 
the broken down school buses and all of the little black children had to go down and attend the poorest staff schools. And all the little white children went to another school. I saw the signs that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women. I didn't like what I saw. And I, I, I thought things could be better. And when I was 15 years old, I, I heard Martin Luther King Jr. on radio. Listen to Dr. King inspired me. He gave me hope. And I kept up with the drama that was taking place around the country, what was happening in Montgomery, and about the Supreme Court decision in 1954. My dream of going to a better school, riding a better bus. I didn't like the fact that my mother and my father, my grandparents, my uncles and aunts didn't have any rights. My mother was say over and over again, boy, that's the way it is. She was saying, you know, cool it, be quiet, don't get in trouble. Well, I was inspired to get in trouble, to get in good trouble. Good trouble is simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation, you have a mission, you have a mandate to speak up, to speak out. You may get arrested and taken to jail. You may be beaten and left bloody. And you could be murdered. You could die. But it's part of the price that you have to pay, not just to liberate yourself, but help free and liberate others. I've been accepted at college in Nashville, Tennessee. By this time, I'm 18 years old. An uncle of mine gave me a $100 bill, more money than I ever had, gave me a footlocker. I put everything that I own, except those chickens, in that footlocker and took a Greyhound bus to Nashville, Tennessee. I remember so well meeting Jim Lawson, young Methodist minister. He represented an organization called the Fellowship of Reconciliation. He had studied the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. In the fall of 1959, he started conducting these unbelievable training sessions. A small group of students would come, listen to him, go through role-playing. We would have what we call social drama because black people and white people couldn't be seated together in a theater. Black people had to go upstairs. White people went downstairs. You couldn't be seated together in a restaurant at a lunch counter. We wanted to change that. We started sitting there on a regular basis. You'd be sitting there in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion. Someone would come up and spit on us or put a light cigarette out in our hair, pour hot water, hot coffee, and pull us off the stools. We had what we call the do's and don'ts of the sit-in movement. If someone push you, don't push back. If someone curse you, not curse. You wanted to project that it was something that the community could rally around and support. White people are cursing, making a lot of noise. These young men and women are just sitting there in the orderly 
peaceful fashion. Nonviolence is not the absence of violence. It is the presence of justice. It is the presence of bringing the dirt and the filth from under the rug, out of the corners, into the open light so we can deal with it. To help convince people who may be standing on the sideline, who may be watching, that this is the right thing to do. And the city spread around the South like wildfire. And we were told over and over again, if we continue to sit in, we will be arrested. And I wanted to be prepared if I were gonna get arrested and go to jail. I wanted to look what some young people would call sharp, a fresh, a clean. I wanted a new suit to wear to jail. I had very little money. So I went downtown Nashville to a used men's store and bought a suit. I paid $5 for that suit. On that day, 89 students were arrested. Became the first mass arrest in the city movement. We filled the city jail and we conducted nonviolent workshops while we were in jail. We sang songs. It created a sense of solidarity that we became one big family. Jim Lawson taught us the whole concept of the beloved community, that this idea that in the bosom of every human being, there is this spark of divinity, that it is this spark of something that is sacred and holy and special, and that we don't have a right to destroy it. You know, no one want to go to jail. No one wants to be beaten. No one want to feel pain. But you come to that point, and you have what I call an executive session with yourself. Say, so if this is the price, you must pay for people to be free, to be liberated, to be whole, then we must be prepared to pay that price. When I was arrested, I felt liberated. I felt free. I felt like I had crossed over. And I did look clean, I did look sharp, I did look fresh, and I have not looked back since. Save big money and start your spring project with help from Menards. We offer a huge selection of body plants, veggies, and herbs to plant at home and grow yourself. Right now, all four and a half inch body plants are on sale through May 5th. Head to the Menards Garden Center to get your garden growing. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. One of John Lewis's boldest decisions was to become one of the original 13 Freedom Riders. The U.S. Supreme Court had already ruled that segregation in interstate travel was unconstitutional. But in many places, those laws simply weren't being enforced. And so in 1961, John Lewis and other civil rights activists decided to get on a bus to challenge segregation in the racially divided South. They nearly got themselves killed in the process. John Lewis knew full well the danger and the difficulty of what he was getting into. But to hear him tell it, the freedom rides were something that simply had to be done. He was 21 years old. 
the Freedom Ride came into being on the part of an organization called CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality. It was to test a decision of the United States Supreme Court banning racial discrimination during interstate travel because black people and white people couldn't be seated together to travel through Virginia, through North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, to New Orleans. We made the decision with CORE and other groups that we will organize the Freedom Ride, starting in May of 1961. I was 21 years old, came to Washington. A group of us went to a little Chinese restaurant in Washington, D.C. Now, growing up in rural Alabama, going to school in Nashville, Tennessee, I never had Chinese food before. We had this wonderful, unbelievable meal. But someone said that evening, you should eat well because this may be like the Last Supper. On May 4th, we left that morning on a Greyhound bus to go from Washington, D.C. all the way to New Orleans. When we arrived in a little town called Rock Hill, South Carolina, we got off the bus, went into this waiting room marked White Waiting. A group of young men, members of the Klan, attacked us, beat us, and left us lying in a pool of blood. The bus was burned in Anderson, Alabama. Another bus was burned and people were beaten in Birmingham. And in Montgomery, Alabama, and Ingram Mart met us at the Greyhound bus station. They first jumped on members of the press. So if you had a camera, a pad, you were the first one to be attacked. And then they turned on us. My seatmate on that leg of the ride was a young white student. We both were beaten and left lying in the street, bloody. I had to get a patch on my head. My seatmate was in the hospital. Eventually, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Reverend Ralph Abernathy, came to Montgomery when they heard about the Freedom Rides and heard what had happened. We had a meeting with them. Said, we're going to have a mass meeting in support of the Freedom Rides at the Fresh Baptist Church in downtown Montgomery. There was an attempt to burn the church. There were more than 1,500 people in the church. The city of Montgomery was put under martial law. And then we made a decision to leave Montgomery and travel to Mississippi. And going to Mississippi, I had never been there before, but I grew up hearing that Mississippi was worse than the state of Alabama. This is the state where Emmett Till was lynched. This is the state where people came up missing. So the National Guard took us to the Mississippi state line and you get to Mississippi, the Mississippi State Troopers put us in jail, black and white freedom riders. Then they made a decision to take us all to Parchment State Penitentiary. A guy is standing there with his rifle, and he said, we have niggers here. They will eat you. They will beat you. He said, your damn freedom songs now. They said to each one of us, take off all of your clothing. It was an attempt to dehumanize us. They segregate us, put all of the white men in one cell block, all of the black men in another. They did the same thing for the white and black women. 
and most of us stayed in jail there for 44 days. But the Freedom Ride led to the segregation of public transportation all across the South. President Kennedy, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, was able to get the Interstate Commerce Commission to issue an order, taking down those signs that said white waiting, colored waiting in the Deep South. More than any lesson that I've learned, you have to be consistent. You have to learn to be not just persistent, but also insistent. And if you see something that needs to be done, do it. It may be hard, it may be difficult, but keep the faith. Hang in there. The March on Washington was the idea of A. Philip Randolph, this dean of black leadership, a man who had been wanting to see a march on Washington since the days of Roosevelt. President Kennedy was to the White House to meet with him. Kennedy didn't like the idea. He said, if you bring all these people to Washington, won't there be violence and chaos and disorder? Mr. Randolph responded in his baritone voice and said, Mr. President, orderly, peaceful, nonviolent protests. And we started organizing. We were able to bring more than 250,000 people to March on Washington. And we all had to prepare a speech. I was very young, 23 years old, with all of my hair and a few pounds lighter. When A. Philip Randolph said, and I present to you young John Lewis, the national chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, I looked to my right. I saw hundreds and hundreds of young people who had been involved during the early days. Look straight ahead, I saw this sea of humanity. Then I looked to the left. I saw young black men and young white men up in the trees trying to get a better view. And then I said to myself, well, this is it. And I looked straight ahead again, and something said to me, go for it. And I opened my mouth, and I started speaking. And some people thought that my speech was a little strong, that it was too radical, but I thought it was a rather a, a good statement. And then Martin Luther King Jr. came up as the 10th speaker. I've heard Dr. King speak and preach so many times. But on that day, he was on fire. He spoke out of the depth of his soul. He preached a sermon. He turned the steps of the Lincoln Memorial into a modern-day pulpit, and he knew he was doing it. We all lifted up. When the march was all over, President Kennedy invited us down to the White House. He was beaming like a proud father, and he kept saying to each one of us, you did a good job, you did a good job. And when he got to Dr. King, he said, you did a good job, and you had a dream. That was my last time seeing President Kennedy. Dr. King used to say, the time is always right to protest for what is right. He also said, there's not anything more powerful than the marching of a determined people. I felt then, and I feel today, that the vote is precious. Is almost sacred. It is the most powerful, nonviolent instrument or tool that we have in a democratic society. But for many years, 
people of color could not register to vote, especially in the 11 states of the old Confederacy. People stood in unmovable lines. People were beaten. People were murdered for attempting to register or to encourage others to register. In one little county called Lowndes County, the county was more than 80% African-American, just outside of Montgomery, Alabama. There was not a single registered African-American voter in the county. After President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act in July 1964, we said to him, in effect, Mr. President, we need a voting rights act. He said, I just signed the Civil Rights Act. We don't have the votes in the Congress to get a voting rights act. If you want it, make me do it. There was a protest in Perry County, Alabama. A young man was shot and murdered because of what happened to him. We made a decision to attempt to march from Selma to Montgomery. And someone from Dr. King's organization said, John, we want you to march with us. We want you to lead this march with Jose Williams from Dr. King's organization. We left church. We conducted a nonviolent workshop in a courtyard. And then we lined up in twos to walk from Selma to Montgomery. I was wearing a backpack before it became fashionable to wear backpacks. I thought I was going to get arrested and go to jail. So in this backpack, I wanted to have something to eat. I had one apple and one orange. I had two books, I had toothpaste and a toothbrush. But we understood while we were walking through the streets of Selma that the sheriff of Selma and Dallas County had requested that all white men over the age of 21 to come down to the courthouse that Saturday night to be deputized, to become part of his posse. We just kept walking. We come to the highest point on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Down below, we see a sea of blue, Alabama State Troopers. We saw all of this water down below in the Alabama River. Jose Williams said to me, John, can you swim? I said, no, Jose, what about you? He said, a little. I said, well, there's too much water in this river for us to jump. We must go straight ahead. A man by the name of John Cloud identified himself and said, I'm Major John Cloud of the Alabama State Troopers. This was an unlawful march. It would not be allowed to continue. Disperse and return to your homes or to your church. I said, Major, may I have a word? He said, there will be no word. You saw these men putting on their gas masks. He said, troopers advance. They came toward us, beating us with nightsticks, tramping us with horses, releasing tear gas. I was the first person to be hit. I was hit in the head by a state trooper with a nightstick. I thought I saw death. I thought I was going to down that bridge. I thought it was my last nonviolent protest. And all these many years later, I don't recall how I made it back across that bridge to the church. I do recall being in the church. They asked me to say something to the audience. And I stood up and said something like, I don't understand it, how President Johnson can send troops to Vietnam and cannot send troops to Selma, Alabama to protect people who only desires to register to vote.
And the next thing I knew, I'd been taken to the Good Samaritan Hospital in Selma, where 17 of us had been hospitalized. And early the next day, that Monday morning, Martin Luther King Jr. came by to see me. And Dr. King said, don't worry, John. We will make it from Selma to Montgomery. I was hopeful. I was optimistic. I never lost a sense of hope. Even being in pain or being in jail, you have to have hope. When you lose that sense of hope, that sense of optimism, it's like giving up. President Johnson spoke to a joint session of the Congress, spoke to the nation, and made one of the most meaningful speeches any American president had made in modern time. I was sitting in a room with Martin Luther King Jr. and others, and I looked at him. Tears came down his face. And I think we all cried a little, because we knew it was just a matter of time. The Congress would pass the voting rights act and President Johnson was signed into law. So I was there on August 6, 1965, when he signed that act and gave me one of the pens that he used to sign it. My mother and my father were able to register and vote for the first time. Uh, my father in particular, but he became very, very proud. And I think at places, it was dangerous for him to say it, to own me. But he said it. He was, yes, that's my boy. For me, Dr. King was my hero. Also, he was, he was my friend. He was like a big brother. You know, he gave me a way out, maybe a way in, but he made life better. He was just the warmest, nicest guy you ever wanted to meet. He would tease me from time to time. He would say things like, John, do you still preach? And I said, Dr. King, when I'm taking a shower. And he thought it was so funny. He would just laugh. And on occasion, when we would be traveling in Alabama or someplace in Mississippi, you see a little hole in the wall, cafe, a restaurant, he would say things like, we should stop and get something to eat. If we get arrested and go to jail, we'd go on a full stomach. And he thought it was so funny, but I didn't think it was so funny. He had a heart of gold. The, the day that Dr. King was assassinated, April 4th, 1968, I was working at Robert Kennedy campaign for the Democratic nomination for president. And when Robert Kennedy got up to speak, he said he had some sad news. Like the many, many people waiting to hear Bobby Kennedy, we all cried. It was a sad and dark hour. I didn't know what was happening to this country, really. I felt like something had died in America. And I think something died in all of us. One of the reasons for getting involved in American politics, to run for office, I felt maybe, just maybe, that I could help continue the efforts of Dr. King. As we were saying in the movement, you must continue to pick them up and put them down. You must believe that somehow and some way we're going to overcome, we're going to survive. 
may get knocked down, but you got to get up. You dry your tears and keep moving. During the Freedom Rides or during the sit-ins, during my efforts in Mississippi around the vote or working in Selma, I never ever thought about giving up and saying this is too much. I never thought about dropping out. You come to that point where you say, I got to go on and see what the end going to be. You have to. You, you, you have to get out there and push and pull to try to make things better for generation yet unborn. Each one of us has the ability to resist, not to be quiet. We have to be brave. We have to be bold. We have to use our constitutional rights. If it means a march, a silent walk, a sit-in, a sit-down, or maybe signing a petition, writing a letter of voting, we have to be engaged, all of us, as members of the human family, as citizens of this country. There are forces that want to take us back to another place. And we're saying we're not going back. We've come too far. We made too much progress to stop now or to turn around. That's why I feel it is part of my obligation, my mission, or mandate to reach as many young people as possible. The fight is not over. We have to continue to fight. And sometimes you have to fight some of the old battles over and over again for the next generation, for generation yet unborn. You too can make a contribution, and you must. Congressman John Lewis has devoted his life to getting into good trouble. But putting himself in harm's way and staying true to his nonviolent principles, no matter how viciously he was personally abused, Congressman Lewis helped to change the hearts and minds of this country. His selfless deeds contributed directly to the eventual passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And he has not slowed down. In recent years, he's led a sit-in for gun safety on the House of Representatives floor and been arrested while protesting for immigration reform in addition to fighting for the dignity of people from every walk of life. His accomplishments are historic, and his life will remain an example for generations to come. It is an honor for me to say, Congressman John Lewis, you are a hero and a master. During the Freedom Rides, or during the sit-ins, during my efforts in Mississippi around the vote, or working in Selma, I never, ever thought about giving up and saying this is too much. I never thought about dropping out. You come to that point where you say, I got to go on and see what the end going to be. You have to. You have to get out there and push and pull to try to make things better for generation yet unborn. Each one of us has the ability to resist, not to be quiet. We have to be brave, we have to be bold. We have to use our constitutional rights. If it means 
a march, a silent walk, a sit-in, a sit-down, or maybe signing a petition, writing a letter of voting. We have to be engaged, all of us, as members of the human family, as citizens of this country. There are forces that want to take us back to another place, and we're saying we're not going back. We've come too far. We made too much progress to stop now or to turn around. That's why I feel it is part of my obligation, my mission, or mandate to reach as many young people as possible. The fight is not over. We have to continue to fight. And sometimes you have to fight some of the old battles over and over again for the next generation, for generation yet unborn. You too can make a contribution, and you must. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.